Well, let's take our Bibles and uh, turn in them to the book of Malachi. Malachi. It's been some time since we've been here. This will be the final message in the book of Malachi, at least for us, not because we couldn't camp out in each section that we have studied over the past several months, and we could camp out in those for quite some time, but simply because my intent was to simply just whet our appetites for what is in the Old Testament. As you well know, we did a series through the Minor Prophets, which was to give us an overview, really, of all that the Minor Prophets are teaching about Jesus Christ. And then as we came to Malachi, I just had a desire to, to kind of walk us through that in a greater way than just the overview, as we heard uh, at first, and give us a little more in-depth understanding of what is really going on. And so I trust that our study over time has really uh, accomplished that goal as we look through the minor prophets, that your appetite has been wet for all that has gone on and all that is going on by God's design through the prophets of the Old Testament. And tonight we find ourselves in the final section, as I have kind of broken it up for our own understanding, the final section of Malachi's prophecy to Israel. And from the very beginning of our study, the indictments from God against Israel have been both heavy and severe against them, but yet at the same time they have been filled with grace. Our God, as we heard this morning from the Gospel of Luke, is a God of grace. God's intent was that they would fully understand that all of their troubles, all the difficulties that they were going through as a nation and as a people in their own lives was happening in their lives uh, not because God had changed, but because they had changed. God was the same, and yet they were different. They had gone back to their old ways. In fact, in reality, they had never really followed God with a genuine heart. You notice in chapter 3 and verse 7, God says to them, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes, and have not kept them. So in reality, they never had genuinely, authentically followed God. They have been inauthentic in their love for God. In other words, they had been carrying out their religion. They had been carrying out what they considered to be right before God as an outward act, rather than a desire that flowed from a pure heart of love to honor God who had called them. They are treating one another in individual relationships with contempt. They are uh, finding that because of their own sin, their families are falling apart, that the nation as a whole is really reeling under the effects of a universal disobedience to God. Thinking about that sounds rather familiar to us when we think about the universal effects on a nation because a nation collectively has turned its back on God. We see that even happening in our own country today. And yet, all along, God with Israel has desired to be restored with them. He has desired with his genuineness of heart of compassion to shower them with the fullness of 
of what he has promised to shower upon them. You notice that he declares to them in chapter 3 and verse 7, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Return to me and I will return to you. In other words, if you will repent, if you will turn from your sin, turn to me, all things would be clear to you. So God now, in our text for tonight, exhorts them to take a a, a final inventory, if you will, take a final inventory of your own life, your own practices, because your worship of me is inauthentic. And so I want to read for us and spend our time in chapter 3 and verse 13 and go all the way down through chapter 4 and verse 6 where Malachi's prophecy ends. Beginning in chapter 3 and verse 13, your words have been arrogant against me, God says, you say, yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. And they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall." And you will tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. So remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. For behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Now you notice the comparison is going on. There is this comparison of viewpoints when it comes to the wicked and to the righteous. And they are looking at both the wicked and the righteous and declaring in their own minds and their own hearts, they're both the same. There is no difference in the heart and mind of how God deals with them. And yet God is saying there will come a day when you will once again look at the righteous and the wicked, and there will be a distinguishing point. You will again distinguish, he says in verse 18, between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. Now, it's almost as if the collective sentiment of the people of Israel 
was that doing any kind of service for God was useless. You notice in verse 14, you have said it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord, Lord of hosts. Now, <coughs> excuse me, that's a clear misunderstanding. It is a classic viewpoint of what it means to have a relationship with the Creator that is a false view or a wrong view of what it means to be in a relationship with God. The belief that if I do something for God, then God ought to do something for me. That's the idea. That's the, the intent of those words and what is uh, in, in their understanding, how they are thinking about life. It's a philosophy that is actually born in a sinful heart, the heart of mankind, and is not what God has intended. It was never intended this idea that if you do A, B, and C, therefore God is obligated to do D, E, and F. If you do some righteous deed or something you consider righteous, then God is obligated to treat you with some kind of kindness. This is exactly what the world thinks. If I have enough good works, God will accept me. In fact, God isn't just will accept me, but God is required to accept me because after all, I'm not a bad person. And in reality, this very portion of Scripture shows us once again an example of worship that is not authentic worship. It is not authentic worship. In other words, to those who are declaring here in Malachi's day, to the people of Israel are declaring that the church of their day, if you will, if you had a picture in your mind, serving in the church of their day, serving God was being a was, it was a waste of time. It was a worthless venture. And God responds in a similar way as he did to the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, the lukewarm church. Right? That church, he said, he would spit out of his mouth. Why? Because they were neither hot nor cold. They were lukewarm. In other words, there was a religion that took whatever was not definitive. If the crowd was going left, then it would go left. If the crowd was going right, then of course they would go right. There was no definitiveness. There was no sense in which they would stand on some kind of truth. It was pragmatic in every way. No stand on truth because of truth only what works for the moment. That was the lukewarm church in Laodicea, pragmatic and non-definitive. Middle-of-the-road church, if you will. Not middle-of-the-road in the sense of taking God's Word and, and standing on it regardless of what goes left or right. Not that kind of way, but middle-of-the-road in order to accommodate whoever it was and whatever way the crowd was going. Lukewarm. And so here in this final section, Malachi asks three questions. God is asking three questions through Malachi, and they're designed by God to call people to take a final inventory of their lives. <clears throat> take a final inventory of your life. Notice question number one. Question number one is this. Is it actually worthless to serve the Lord? Is it actually worthless to serve the Lord? Verses 13 through 18, this is the question. Is it actually worthless? 
right? And you have these two answers being given. This is the quintessential question. This is the number one question. And depending on who's giving the answer, it's a different answer. You have those who are skeptical as to whether it's a prophet or whether it's good to serve the Lord. They give an answer in verses 13 to 15. And then you have those who fear the Lord or those who believe. They give an answer to that very same question. And it is this, or in verses 16 through 18. So you have this comparison going on. Notice, notice the answer of the skeptics in verses 13 to 15. God says, your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? God says, you have said this, it's vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his charge, and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and they escape. And so the question is laid before us, is it actually worthless to serve the Lord? Well, the skeptic says that it is. The skeptic says, yes, it's worthless to serve the Lord. We've been serving the Lord. It's, it's been vain service before God. <clears throat> There's no profit in it. We've kept his charge. We've even walked in mourning before the Lord, and it's done us no good. It's shown us no good at all. Why? Because in the practical outworking of life, there seems to be no real difference. There seems to be no change. Nothing is different between that which is said to be wicked and those who claim to be good. And in other words, the outworking of life, it seems like those who serve the Lord have the troubles of life just like the wicked who don't serve the Lord. In fact, they are testing God and escaping. And just the thought of that, again, is an indictment, by the way, against the very nature and character of God himself. Right? They say, God says in verse 13, your words have been arrogant against me. So just the thought of saying it's vain to serve the Lord, there is no profit in serving the Lord, just the reality of that and thinking that there isn't is arrogance, and arrogance is pointing the finger at the very nature and character of God. In other words, to go about serving God when your heart is not right with God that is arrogant enough, right? To go about as a, as a Christian serving God when your heart isn't right about God, that's just pride. But to say that there is no difference between those who genuinely serve God and those who don't, to say that God looks at them differently, well, those are arrogant words that speak from ignorance and presumption. In fact, they actually blame God, just as God said, your words have been arrogant against me. Your very words, your very thoughts, the very idea that you have in your heart about serving me and comparing your service with that of the wicked is arrogant against me. Your words speak against me. You're actually blaming God. Why? Well, in our text, in Malachi's prophecy here, remember that God had offered to the arrogant a test. Remember, Israel is the arrogant people. Israel is the one that God is indicting, and God offered them a test. You say, well, what was that test? 
Well, back in verses 8 and 9, he says, Will a man rob God, yet you're robbing me? And you say, How, how have we robbed you? God says in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. In other words, no one's escaping. You're all in the same boat. You're all doing the same thing. And here's the test. Here's the test for you who are arrogant about that. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, verse 10, so that there may food be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. And then I'll rebuke the devourer for you so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will the vine of your field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. But that's not where they're at. Their words are arrogant against God. Why? Because they say it's vain to serve God. God has already put the tests before them. In your giving, do as you have been commanded to do. Bring what is rightfully mine into my house. Test me and see if I won't open the doors of heaven and pour down upon you the blessings in my kingdom. But their response was from their own pride. Their response was from an inauthentic worship of God. They said to God in essence, listen, listen, we've already put you to the test. We don't need another test. We have already put you to the test. We have served you. We have done what you have asked us to do. We have carried out what you have commanded. And like a lion that roars but has no bite, so too you. You threaten, but you never follow through. You threaten, but you never follow through. In other words... Their indictment of God was that he was like like a parent that continually says stop to their children, but there is no real consequence that ever follows. And so what's their conclusion as they compare themselves with the wicked? Well, we just call all people blessed. We just call all people blessed, right? Now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and they escape. We call all people blessed. Why? Because the wicked test you and they escape. You're not a person of your word is the indictment against God. You say that judgment comes, but it never does. It never comes. Those who do not follow you have lives that are better than our life. And so we call all people blessed. They're the same. They're the same. We've come to the conclusion, God, that it's vain to serve you. You see, their contention was that serving God was a losing proposition. Doing what God asked was worthless because it never produced anything, at least from their perspective, for them. I've heard that in our day by some outside the church, by the unbeliever, right? Why should I believe in your God? People will ask, why should I in some way have any kind of relationship with a God you say I should have one with? My life's going just fine. There's no real trouble in my life. You say that God judges people. Well, I certainly don't sense any real judgment in my life. You're the one who seems to be having more struggle than I do. 
And you're the one who serves God. I've seen others walk away from the church because it didn't do what they were already predetermining it should do for them. Well, I don't go to that church because it doesn't give me exactly what I want anymore. And after all, what beneficial difference, particularly for Israel in Malachi's day, what beneficial difference could anyone point to, anyone in the nation of Israel, what beneficial difference could they point to that directly connected them with serving God? They really couldn't point to anything. To them, all service to God was just vain. It was worthless. It was useless. It was valueless. There was no real profit to it, no observable return on the investment. Notice verse 14, he says, You have said it's vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his charge? What profit? By the way, the word profit there is a word used to describe the act of cutting woven cloth away from the loom, right? They're, they're weaving cloth on a loom, and and the word for profit is the word for cutting away the cloth from that loom. And God, through Malachi, is using that word in a negative way, in a negative way to describe them as people who want their cut of the percentage. That's the idea. They want their cut. In other words, it's worthless to serve God. Why? Because we never get our cut. We never get what's due us. So the skeptic indicts God. They say that the wicked are really the blessed ones. They're the ones that are built up. But is that true? Is that true? Well, another group gives an answer. The opposite group gives an answer, and it's the believers. It's the ones who fear the Lord. And rather than focusing on conversations about themselves or on their own circumstances, they focus their attention on the Lord himself. You notice that twice in verse 16, it describes these as those who feared the Lord. Right, Verse 16, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. I think that's an important phrase for us to kind of just have solidified in our our minds because it's the most significant identifying difference between these two groups. And it is why the leaders of Israel were thinking the way they were thinking. It is why, in verses 13 to 15, those in Israel were skeptics. There was a lack of the fear of the Lord. They didn't fear God. The fear of the Lord is simply just another way for you and I to say those who live righteously and those who walk by faith out of reverence for God. That's the idea. That's the idea. In other words, it's the fear of the Lord, right? We know that is honor, respect for the God whom we serve and who he is. It's respect for his very personhood and nature. And it's that that motivates 
us as true believers to walk in obedience. It's that that motivates us to maintain an attitude of complete trust in Him as our Master and Savior, no matter what is happening. So this is why Malachi brings it up. This is why God is showing the difference. There is a contrast going on here. The skeptics do not fear the Lord, and that's why they come to the conclusion they come to. There's no prophet. It's vain to serve the Lord. But the believer fears the Lord. He fears the Lord. Why? Why do they fear the Lord? Because the believer meditates upon his name. Notice Verse 16, it is for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. There's a contrast. Esteem means to think highly of, to think highly of, to praise, to ponder, so as to praise it, to think about it in with the desire and motivation to praise it. They praise the name of God. In other words, they meditate on God and the things of God. Right? We were exhorted just a little bit ago as we talked about the book of Proverbs that we ought to take some of those, not try to get them all in our head at one time, but just take a little portion and, and think about that throughout the day. Meditate upon that. That word was even used. This is what's going on. They are meditating upon the Word of God. And when it says the book of remembrance was written, that's not the book of life. That's not what he's talking about as Revelation talks about. This is just God keeping track of all our deeds, right? God does that. We'll be judged according to our deeds. As a Christian, the the salvation reality is taken care of, right? The penalty was paid for in Christ. His righteousness is imputed to us. We have his righteousness upon our account, and therefore we are secure in Jesus Christ. And yet there is coming a day when all of our deeds will be judged before Christ at the bema seat of Christ, and we will, whatever is not worthless, whatever is not wood, hay, and stubble, as Paul said to the Corinthian church, will remain That's what it is. It's the book of remembrance. It's written before him for those who fear the Lord. Right? So they meditate on God. They meditate on the things of God. By the way, some of you have, think with the ladies Bible study, have studied Psalm 1. Psalm 1 puts it this way. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Why? Because he fears the Lord. There's a fear of God in his eyes. So because of the fear of God, the believer, the non-skeptic, that who, those who fear God, they consider God and the things of God of great value a great treasure far above anything in this world. They are treasuring the things of God above anything else. In other words, God himself is the highest prize for the believer. He is the highest prize. So to say that we prize or esteem the name of God is to say that we prize him. We esteem him. 
Why? Because his name comprises his entirety. It is who he is. It is his character. It is nature. It is all that he is, his qualities, his, his doctrine, his standards of morals and ethics. Whatever it is that is true of God is of highest value to the true Christian. Those who fear the Lord, we esteem the name of God. So if you're able to ask the believers of that day that Malachi is writing to, what they counted as their wealth, what they counted as their greatest treasure, their greatest asset, they would have pointed to God. They would have said, God is my greatest treasure. Notice, by the way, just turn over a couple pages to Matthew chapter 6, because this, this isn't just something from the Old Testament prophets that came about. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said in verse 19, Do not lay up your, for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Why? Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You see, this is what motivates us. This is what carries us along in worship. This is where true worship flourishes from. What is treasured in our heart. We worship God in authenticity because we esteem Him for who He is. So every believer reflects upon the things of God, and the consequence is that His character is reflected in their character. We esteem the things of God, the very nature and character of God, the glory of God is reflected in our very lives. And verse 16 says, God listens to them. The Lord gave attention and heard it. They spoke to one another. What were they, were they speaking to one another about? God, the things of God, how wonderful it was to be one of God's children, how wonderful it was to be counted as one of God's people, those who feared him. They spoke well of him to one another, and the Lord gives attention to that, and he hears that. And he marks down all of those things as good. It's written before him. They esteem God. He's not talking about the book of life, like I said. He's simply saying that God is tracking every activity of life. He's tracking it. And one day, he will give the reward. Notice verse 17. And they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on that day I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. In other words, my wrath is coming. There is coming a day of judgment. It is not some kind of uh, false a uh, word in which I'll never act. That day is coming, and those who fear me, they will be mine. They're secure in me. My wrath will not be on them on that day, because they're my own possession, and I will spare them of that. There is a reward to come. It is not of this earth. It is of the one to come. So in time... The true difference between the wicked and the righteous will be unmistakable. In time, it will be clear. Those who fear him will be shown to be his own possession. 
That is simply to say that when God comes to carry out his just and his righteous judgment, which he will do, those who are his will be protected. And this is exactly what the psalmist said in Psalm 1, just as he said, those who are the Lord's, the blessed life is the one that meditates on the word of God. He goes on to say at the end of Psalm 1, verses 5 and 6, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Why? Because the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The way of the wicked will perish. That isn't knowledge. That isn't intellectual knowledge. The Lord knows intellectually the ways of the righteous. No, He's intimate with their ways. He's intimate with them. But the wicked, they have nothing with God. They will perish under His judgment. In fact, it gets even more graphic In chapter 4 and verse 1, the day is coming burning like a furnace and all the arrogant and the evildoer will be chaff, just as Psalm 1 says. The day is coming and I will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Verse 3, and you will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. They will perish. There is coming a day when when the distinguishing reality will be seen with all clarity. You may look at it now and you may say, well, it's vain. In your heart you say, ah, what, what, what point is it to serve God? It doesn't seem like it's doing anything for me. Listen, the day is coming when there will be absolute clarity. Don't think that it's vain to serve the Lord now. God is keeping a record. Keeping a record. No one's getting away with anything. No one is testing God and escaping. Question number two, is there actually no difference between the righteous and the wicked? We've already talked about this a little bit, verses or chapter four, verses one to three. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. The day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither branch nor root. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall, and you will tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. God says, listen, the day of clarity is coming. The day of of clarity from God is coming. You may not see it now from your human perspective, but the day of clarity is coming. The word day, by the way, here is going to be stated four different times. You noticed that as I was reading. Similar to the language of the prophet Joel and the prophet Zephaniah. Joel 2, verse 11 says, The Lord utters His voice. Before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Joel, of course, speaking of this very day, this day that is coming, that will be burning like a furnace. Who can endure that day? The answer to that in that rhetorical question is no one without God preserving them. No one. The only ones that 
are going to endure that day is those whom God spares, those who are his, as verse 17 says. Zephaniah relays the same message, Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14 through 16. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. In other words, nothing will stand. Nothing will be able to endure that day. It's on the final day when God will bring all the wicked into eternal torment. All those who have tested God and assumingly have escaped will, in fact, find eternal torment. In fact, verse 1 uses pretty graphic terminology to say what that is. Verse 1 says, He will set them ablaze. He will set them ablaze. They will be like chaff. So it will leave them neither root nor branch. You notice that. In other words, God's anger will burn with consuming vengeance. Don't look at the world. Don't look at the church. Don't look at serving God as if it is a vain reality, as if the worship of God is some worthless endeavor because the world hates it and because it seems like it doesn't get you anywhere. Don't look at it like that. God's anger will burn one day against them with consuming vengeance against all who have rejected him. It's truly sad how some even within larger evangelicalism today, try to explain away the justice of God by overemphasizing the love of God. That since God is loving, there's no way that the loving God would send a sinner or someone that he's created to a eternal punishment. A loving God would never condemn anyone to eternal punishment, they say. But to pit the love of God against his justice is to create a God of your own making. It's to create a God that is not the God of the Bible. In fact, all of the judgments by God in the Old Testament, all of the judgments that God meted out even upon Israel, upon all those who were nations to be destroyed at the hand of God's wrath through the means of other nations, they are just shadows of what is to come. All of those judgments were just a a means of God showing people what is to come in the final days, the totality of God's wrath that will be felt on all the earth, and the wicked will be like dry chaff in the summer. They will be like the husks, the dried husks of the old corn stalk, but not those who fear God, not those who fear God. Notice verse 2, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you'll go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. In other words, there's a totally different consequence. Those who are arrogant, those who are 
saying things arrogantly to God, calling out and indicting God for what God is doing and how God is doing it, those who do not fear the Lord, there is a a furnace coming. There is a, a hot day of judgment that is coming on every evildoer and all the arrogant, and God will set them ablaze, but not for those who fear the Lord. Those who have trusted in God and trusted in what He has done, those who serve the God with their God with a pure heart, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. God obviously using a picture. A picture for those who fear the Lord. Malachi is speaking, I believe, of Christ. The pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of Righteousness, even though he's using the term S-U-N, the brightness of righteousness will rise with healing on its wings. The brightness of righteousness incarnate is Jesus Christ. He is the Son of Righteousness. In fact, Jeremiah in Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6 says that he is the Lord of Righteousness. He is the Lord of Righteousness. And so in that day, righteousness himself will come for those who fear the name of God. And he will bring their deliverance. They will not burn like chaff. He will bring their deliverance. He will have healing on the wings. Like the flower that sprouts in the spring sunshine. Like the newborn calf that, brings, that begins to immediately run when it's born. So too, all who have trusted the Lord will be fully free, will be completely free, and the wicked will be no more. Verse 3, you will tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. So is it vain to serve the Lord? The obvious answer is no. Is there a difference in the eyes of God between the wicked and wicked and the righteous? The obvious answer is absolutely. And so the third question comes, are there guides for the righteous? Are there guides for those who are righteous, for those who fear the Lord? The only answer is yes. Notice verses 4 and 6, 4 through 6, remember the law of Moses my servant even the statutes and ordinances which I have commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of that great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. In other words, the victory of those who are gods is only possible when we remember God's word. It's only possible when we remember God's word. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, he says to his people. That's simply to say that God's word and God's people are inseparably linked. God's word and God's people are inseparably linked. In other words, no one can rightly claim to be a child of God one can rightly claim to be a child of God and yet not desire and strive, even in the smallest of ways, must strive to be obedient to what God commands. Certainly we will fail. Certainly we will struggle with that, walking in faith. 
but it's a striving. It's a remembering. It's a having that in our mind. It is like the psalmist said, meditating on the word of God day and night. And if you will not walk according to his word, if you will be arrogant against that, if you will not fear the Lord, then you can expect his judgment. God is saying to Israel, if you're not walking my word, then judgment is coming. And we have to remember something. God's promises do not nullify his law. Right? Because we are secure doesn't mean that there's no reason for us to obey. Right? We're in, so how could we ever, since we can't get out, since God would never throw us out, then what's the point? Why obey? But we have to remember God's promise of that doesn't nullify the reality of his law. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3 that by faith, the law has been established. By faith, the law has been established. Romans chapter 3, verse 31. So there is a guide for the righteous. That's the idea. What is it? God's word. That's the guide for the righteous. That's why God finally says in verse 5 and 6, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So there's a near prophecy there and a far prophecy there. Elijah, we understand, is John the Baptist. That's the near prophecy. And the far prophecy is the great and terrible day of the Lord, which is the coming day of judgment in the end. Elijah's going to come to the nation of Israel, the one like Elijah. Revelation chapter 11 even seems to indicate possibly one of the two witnesses will be actually Elijah as he proclaims the gospel even there. Remember, the tribulation period is primarily a Jewish time as God draws the Jews back to himself. So we know it's John the Baptist. We know potentially it's even... This double fulfillment by means of Revelation chapter 11. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. It says, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. So we know who that's referring to. Right? We've studied that in Luke chapter 1. So there's coming a day when all humanity will face God. And for those who have refused him, he will curse them. He will curse them. That's all they will get is a curse, eternal curse. Right? So after a long pursuit, continually offering grace to the wicked, God will ultimately claim all things back to himself. And whether a believer or an unbeliever, all people will bow before God. So the question is, is it worthwhile to serve Christ? Is it worthwhile to serve Christ? Is he all voice and no action? Is he what Israel is indicting him about. Is that true of him? Is there really no difference in the eyes of God between the wicked and the righteous? We know the answer to those questions. Of course it's worthwhile to serve the Lord. 
God is not just a voice. He will act. What God says he will do. And the difference between those who are his and the wicked will be clearly evident. Malachi says that. The day is coming when you will distinguish between the wicked and the righteous. It will be evident. The righteous have God's word to direct them. He'll keep them safe. He has given them all they need for life and godliness. Our most valued possession, beloved, is Christ. Our most valued possession is Him. And and to think, just to think that out of everything that God has, out of everything that God has, which is everything, He would call us as His own is a glorious truth, isn't it? That out of everything God could do, He chose to call us to Himself. So here's our final exhortation. Take inventory of your soul. This is the issue with Israel. Israel, take inventory of your soul. Take inventory of where you are and stand with the righteous. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Now I want to just close our time tonight by just reading for us the words of Asaph. We know them well. This is the only thing that will change our perspective. Asaph in Psalm 73, who almost slipped, almost got into this thinking that it was vain to serve the Lord, said, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Surely God is good to those who fear the Lord. That's the idea. Surely God is that. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. Right? I, I almost didn't have that perspective. I was at the place where I almost thought of God in a different way. My steps had almost slipped, verse 2 says. Why? Because I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There were no pains in their death. Their body was fat. They're not in trouble as other men. And by other men, he means those who serve the Lord. Nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, because of that, his people, whose people? God's people return to this place. And waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? The same thing that Israel is doing. God, you don't don't even know. You don't do anything. I mean, look, the wicked test you and they escape. Is there knowledge with you? Behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. That's what we often ask. Surely, Lord, in vain I've I've believed you. I've washed my hands in innocence. 
I've been stricken all day long. I've been chastened every morning. Look, your, your word, I read it, I open it in the morning, and it crushes me every time I do that. Surely it's worthless to do this. It doesn't seem to be helping at all in my life. I had said I will speak this way. Behold, I should have betrayed the generation of your children. Table's starting to turn. Asaph's heart. Then wait a minute. My thinking is wrong here. And so when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. I was battling with my own flesh, my own heart. And the only thing that gave me clarity, he says, I was having this troublesome reality in my own perspective until I came into the sanctuary of God. And then I perceived therein. Ah, the winds of God's word blows through the cloudy fogginess of our thinking and everything clears up. And just like Malachi's words, just like God's words to Israel, listen, there is a difference between the wicked and the righteous. I am keeping account. There is a difference and one day it will all come to fruition. Those who fear me will have healing come to them. The son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip like calves from the stall. Asaph says, when I, when I came to the sanctuary of God, I perceived their end. I, I saw it clearly. Surely you set them in slippery places. Surely you cast them down to destruction. How they're destroyed in a moment, they're utterly swept away by sudden terrors like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. So when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand with your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. What was Asaph's greatest treasure? God himself, right? Who am I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength, my heart, my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. It's the only thing that brings us clarity. It's not our perspective of how things are going from our perspective as we compare ourselves to others. It's what God says will come. The question is, just as it was for Israel, do you believe it? Do you trust that? It's funny, we use a term in evangelicalism from time to time. I'm just burnt out. Just burnt out. Been ministering, serving, whatever it was. And I'm just burnt out. And I understand getting tired in the ministry. I understand that. But is our perspective right if we're saying, I'm just burned out from serving the Lord? I think if we look down in our hearts, the reason we say that far too often is simply because we've desired something 
on an earthly level that God has not allowed us to have, and it seems like our service is in vain. When in fact we ought to serve the Lord from a pure heart and just trust God with all the results because God is keeping record. Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the prophecy of Malachi to Israel. Oh Lord, if we were honest in our own hearts tonight about our relationship with you, we would confess that our worship to you is oftentimes inauthentic. Our words are easy to say, and yet by our very lives, our very often, we are a contradiction of our very words. We know who you are. You have promised that you would bless us with every spiritual blessing, that you have given us that in Christ, and yet we live very often as if we have none. Lord, forgive us for that. Forgive us for presuming upon your grace, for looking at life here from the perspective of the human reward rather than the heavenly one. Thank you for the prophecy of Malachi, the ministry and words of Asaph. Understanding the only thing that gives us a right perspective is to know who you are and to realize that you, nothing escapes your notice. And that our task is simply to serve you with a pure heart regardless of what's going on around us and regardless of what kind of accolades and what kind of praise we might receive. It's not about us. It's about you and your glory. Help us believe that. Serve with great fervor. And give you all the praise because you deserve it. We deserve nothing. So thank you for these things, Lord. Bless us as we honor you. Not for our sake, but for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.